Hey everybody, Pastor Gary here. Super excited. Listen, stop. We're super excited that you have all joined us here today. We're having some technical difficulties as usual. If you're a visitor with us this morning, I want to thank you for joining us here online. We are blessed by your presence and hope that you continue to join us weekly as we look at God's Word and how it impacts our lives here today. But right now, our country is in a place of significant turmoil. For the last two weeks, we have awoken each morning to see more rioting and looting in our streets in many of our cities. <clears throat> Why? Because a man was murdered. There is no other way to acknowledge what happened two weeks ago. It is a tragedy. And what has erupted from this single incident is generations of pain carried by our black community. No one should act surprised by this response. The fact is that a group of people can carry pain for generations after that pain was originally inflicted. Why is this pain carried for so long though? Because atonement for the pain was never really made. True reconciliation was never honestly made. And so generations later, that pain still exists today. Now, I also recognize that not everyone in the black community will identify with that pain. Why is that? Because God their Father has touched their hearts and he has brought them freedom from the sins their forefathers had to bear. You see, we have been going about trying to resolve this deeply destructive problem in our culture completely wrong. So many see the problem as persisting because of the men and women who stand right before them. And in so doing, they then take the battle to those people whom they now see as the enemy. There is no denying that some of these people are wrong and they are racist. But our battle ultimately is not with each other. The battle that stands before us is a battle of the heart. Our battle is a battle that is a spiritual one in nature. You see, Satan for years has been and will continue to convince each one of us that whatever race we are, <clears throat> not, is where the real problem lies. The problem is either due to white privilege and as a result, a white person's inability to see the problems that exist within the system. Or the problem is that the black community needs to understand that we didn't do this and so we are not the problem. The problem is that neither of these positions can bring about a true solution to the problem that we see before us. Why? Because both are perceived by the other group as an attack against that group. And as long as that perception exists, true reconciliation is not possible. Satan has blinded us to the truth that stands right before us. And, unfortunately, much of what we see today is due to the continued secularization of our nation. And the further we move as a nation from the Judeo-Christian heritage that defined our country from the start, the further we will move from the solution that we so desperately need. My hope is that God, through our little church plant that historically has had all of 10 people on average attending, can begin a revolution. You see, a revolution is needed. We, the people of God, need to make a stand. Satan is destroying lives all across this country right now, and it is time that we take this fight to him. Jesus said that the church will march forth in his name, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. 
Much of the church has become lazy because of the pressures of secularization. We are told that the message of the church needs to remain within the four walls of the church. Jesus says that we are to take the message of the world, or we are to take the message of the church to the ends of the world. Right now, our country desperately needs that message. If you are sitting here this morning and you mourn the pain that so many in our country are experiencing, then today our message is the beginning of a story that we need to hear. Because it is a story of redemption from that pain. And my hope is that from the encouragement of this story, we will rise up and take the solution to the streets. The King of Kings, our one true Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the solution. So let's look at our story in Esther chapter 3. It is the story of a man named Mordecai and the man whom he sees as his enemy, Haman. We read in Esther chapter 3 verse 1, After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. The first thing that we need to learn about Haman is that he is an Agagite, which means that he is a descendant of King Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. And those details are significant to our story, and the relationship between Mordecai and Haman is affected by that. Last week, we looked at Mordecai's lineage, and we found that he is a descendant of the first king of Israel, King Saul. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul is told by God to wage war against the Amalekites and to totally destroy them. However, Saul was disobedient in this regard, and he chose to take all that he deemed was valuable, which included Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Haman is a descendant of Agag. That is why he is called an Agagite in our story. As a result of Saul's disobedience to God's commandment, we are told that God rejects Saul as king of Israel. All of this history creates for some very significant bad blood between the Amalekites and the Jews for significantly periods, long periods of time. And this is what right now is motivating Mordecai. We can easily say that neither of these men were involved in what had occurred in the past and that it happened generations before them, so neither of them should still be carrying this pain. However, we can clearly see that both of these men are still being affected by these historical realities. It is important to see that the sins of generations past carry ramifications far into the future. We may not like the reality that people are still affected by the actions of white people generations ago, but that does not make it any less real. We see this right here in our story, no differently than what we are experiencing today. And we see it in both Haman and in Mordecai. I'm sure there were other Jews present who thought Mordecai was taking things too far. Just bow before the man, they would have thought. You are upset over things that are ancient history. You need to move on and stop being a slave to the sins of the past. And there is the key. Satan digs into the hearts of men on both sides, and he doesn't allow the sins of the past to either be healed or to be properly repented of. And what happens is that generation after generation, we have children born whom we will pass these pains on to. 
and they will carry that pain oftentimes to the next generation. The only way to have this stopped is for God himself to reach into the hearts of men and women and to heal them of the burden that they carry. There is no other option. But what about Mordecai's response? I do believe that his response is not rooted in healthy emotions, but he sees the man him before him as the enemy demanding worship. I would say that no man is worthy of worship. And so in that regard, in that were, if that were the only thing standing in Mordecai's way, I would agree with his decision. Mordecai makes a stand. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't cry out. He makes a silent stand in the midst of a sea of people who just want to move on and get this whole thing over with. Remember from last week, the kingdom says, resistance is futile, assimilation is required. But Mordecai says, no, I will not assimilate. And so he makes a stand. This would have been obvious to everyone who was present, right? They would have all seen him standing, the only one. And people respected Mordecai. And I believe they wanted what was best for Mordecai. And so they came to Mordecai and they pleaded with him and they asked him, why do you disobey the king's command? This isn't simply Haman, who you're being disobedient to. It is the king. And I am certain they were confused because they would have known that Mordecai had raised Esther as his own child. So these men came to Mordecai confused by his actions. And in verse 4, we are told that they came to him day after day until it became obvious that he was simply not going to be moved. And so then they felt the need that they needed to go to Haman himself to explain why it was that Mordecai felt he could not bend the knee. We are told that Mordecai had told them that he could not because he was a Jew. Now, most of these would not have been Jews, and so they would not have been court officials made up of men from all across the Persian Empire. So this fact would not have been of any consequence to them, the fact that he was a Jew. They would not have been aware of the history of these two people. And we are told that they go then to Haman, and they tell him that Mordecai refuses to bow before him because Mordecai is a Jew. And Haman, it says, becomes enraged with Mordecai. Generations of hurt and pain come to the surface. And we read in verse 6, Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Generations of pain and suffering come to the surface. For the crimes that Israel, he saw, had committed against the Amalekites. At least, that is how Haman would have seen it in the moment. Now is his, now is his opportunity, he feels, to exact revenge against the Jews for what was done to his people generations ago. Satan touches that pain that had been dormant for generations, but had been spoken of in hushed tones oftentimes and passed along from generation to generation. The Amalekites were humiliated by the Jews. Well, not this time, thinks Haman. He will bring about revenge against the entire Jewish nation that is now under the control of the Persian Empire. I wish I could say that similar thinking isn't happening today in our own nation. 
We may, may not be able to carry it out as far as Haman is here, but there are those who want to make the descendants, or even possible descendants, of slave owners pay for their crimes. Unfortunately, this isn't how justice works. I almost wish that it did, because if it did, then so be it, make it so, because then perhaps healing might come. You see, this isn't how justice works, and healing won't come for anyone. If anything, it will just, as we will see in our story, create a deeper divide among the people of our country. You see, Haman doesn't want to see healing come. He doesn't feel like he has any pain. He simply wants to exact revenge for crimes committed against his countrymen. One of the problems with pain and sin is the, that the unregenerate heart can actually crave greater levels of pain through sin. Why do we all at times get angry or upset at things that don't really matter? But we do. And Haman is going to do this very thing right now. And so Haman, he hatches a plan. And we are told that in the twelfth year of the reign of Xerxes, in the first month of that year, it's very specific, they cast what is called the poor, which is the casting of the lots. And they cast the number twelve. Haman takes this as a sign that he is meant to carry out his plan in the twelfth month of that year. Haman saw this as a sign from the luck of the gods. But there was no luck involved, and it was not from the gods. Instead, I believe that God the Father, the creator of the heavens and the earth, caused that twelve to be cast that day, so that then there would be enough time to circumvent Haman's plans. God is sovereign over all things, all peoples, and even what may seem to be the random roll of the dice. But Haman sees this as a sign, and so he then goes to Xerxes in order to put his plan in motion. We read the words of Haman to Xerxes in verses 8 and 9, and his words are so important because we see the true heart of the man revealed. He says, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. And so Mordecai refuses to bow before Haman, and the entire Jewish race is found guilty. I find it interesting that, in fact, the very name of Mordecai is never even mentioned by Haman. I believe there are three reasons for this, and they're important. First, Haman's heart yearns not for the destruction of Mordecai, but for the destruction of all Jews. <clears throat> Second, I am certain that Haman knew that Mordecai had thwarted an assassination attempt on King Xerxes. If Haman had implicated Mordecai and Mordecai alone, I believe that the king's response would have been very different. Finally, Mordecai is the uncle of Xerxes' beloved Queen Esther. But think about it. Haman is willing to try and pull the wool over on Xerxes and have someone whom Xerxes trusts with his own life, Mordecai, Mordecai and Queen, put to the death. He knows this, and all of Susa now knows that Mordecai is a Jew, and they know that Esther was raised by him as his own child because they are cousins, and so they know she is a Jew as well. 
Haman is either very brave or very blind. And that's the problem. He would say that he would that it was his bravery, but the truth is that it is the blinding power of hatred and sin that is motivating him. Today, this is something that we all need to guard against in our own lives as well. It is so easy to allow anger or hatred and sin to blind us to the consequences of our actions. In fact, we may be honestly attempting to accomplish something that we presume to be right and good, but if we are being guided by hatred or anger, if sin is the guiding power that is moving us, then we will become the greatest enemy to our cause. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 tells us, Be angry and do not sin. This is so difficult for us as fallen human beings to do, though. When we see people in authority, regardless of who they are, whether they're police officers or teachers or politicians, it doesn't matter. If they abuse that authority and use that position of authority in a way that damages people's lives, and look, that could be a teacher speaking down to a child and breaking that child's will to succeed. Or it could be, as we have recently experienced, where a white police officer abused their powers and caused the senseless death of a black man. We should all become angry at those unrighteous, sinful actions. The righteousness of God should well up within us in anger towards sin in our communities. But we need to be so very careful to not allow that anger to carry us away and cause us to then sin as well. And that is exactly what Haman does here. His anger is going to lead him down a path of destruction that is nothing short of the actions of a brutal, evil man. In this moment, King Xerxes is fooled. And we are told in verse 10 that he takes his signet ring from his finger and he gives it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. We don't use signet rings today, right? It would have bore the very symbol of the king. It was essentially his signature. It was as if he had turned to Haman and said, Here is the full weight and power of the king of Persia for you to dispense however you wish. Why? Because the king has been convinced that there was an enemy within his borders that needed to be dealt with. And our author wants to make sure that we understand that Haman's desire comes because he sees all Jews as his enemy. He didn't even know most of the Jews who were exiled in Persia at the time. He used this moment to take the actions of one man, though, and to condemn an entire race. This is what a heart which is racist does. A racist person sees the unrighteous actions of one person as the unrighteous actions of an entire race of people. This is the result of a fallen, sinful heart heart turned against God will always be turned against those who bear the image of God. The king then says, keep your money. Do with these people as you please. Haman had offered Xerxes a significant amount of money. It was equal to roughly half the taxes for one year that Persia needed to raise. So Haman was very set on his mission, right? He was proverbially putting his money where his mouth is. He was willing to more than pay to see the mission succeed. But Xerxes is so convinced that there is a very real threat to his kingdom hiding within its very borders that he tells Haman to keep his money. Just make sure this threat is dealt with. 
we are then told in verses 12 and 13 that on the 13th day of the first month of the year, right, so we're at the beginning of the year, the royal secretaries are called forth, and the decree is written and sealed by the king's signet. Haman ordered that all of the Jews were to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. This shows the extent of this man's sinful hatred toward these people, right? He doesn't just want to destroy them, or just kill them, or just have them annihilated. But we need to make sure that all three of these occur. Any one of them would have accomplished his goals. And this is to be all of the Jews. And Haman makes sure everyone understands this. And he writes within the decree that this means the young and the old, the women and little children. And after they've been killed, you were to take all that they own. And this decree is to be carried out on a single day, on the 13th day of the 12th month the month of Adar, almost a full year away from when the decree was sent out. And as soon as the decree is written, it is sent out to every province and city in the kingdom with amazing speed. It would have been but only a few days before everyone in the kingdom would have known of the decree. I have to be honest, I find this part really weird. You announce almost a year out that you're going to massacre an entire race of people living within your borders to everyone. Did they expect the Jews to just sit tight and await their impending doom? You see, this speaks to the corrupting power of absolute power. These two men are so convinced of the power of the word of the king that they assume that is exactly what is going to happen. Jews, we're going to kill every one of you. Just not yet. You don't mind waiting a few months, do you? Really? This is so weird. And not only that, but these people are such a threat to the kingdom that we will tell them 11 months ahead of time that we're going to destroy them. This in and of itself should have been proof to Xerxes that these people were absolutely no threat to his kingdom. Because if they truly were such a threat that they needed to be annihilated, then they would have done so immediately. But Xerxes has been played the fool. And he has been played well. Our author brings this chapter to a close in verse 15. And he writes that the couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command. And that the decree went to the citadel in Susa as well. Now the citadel, right? This is where Mordecai lives, as well as Queen Esther. And we're told that Haman and Xerxes are so pleased with this amazing plan that they have just enacted that they sit down and they have a drink to celebrate. But the city of Susa, it says, was bewildered. What had these people done that deserved this type of response? And by now, the city of Susa would have known that Mordecai was a Jew. He let that cat out of the bag, right? And that means that by extension, his family, and that's the queen, is a Jew. And so also included in this decree, and so the city of Susa sits in wonder at what these two men are doing in response to Mordecai's unwillingness to bow before Haman. But when you're on the outside looking in, you are oftentimes able to see things clearly that others are not capable of seeing. 
Haman has allowed his power to go to his head, so much so that he believes himself worthy of worship, and he demands that worship of others. The truth is that this is what can happen to fallen sinful men and women when they are given authority over others. That power can be intoxicating. And when one becomes drunk on power, that power will lead anyone to expect others to respond in worship, not simply obedience, but worship. And when worship is not given, a vicious response is the only thing that can force a person to submit to a level that could cause them to worship another. Unfortunately, we see this in so many people in our world today even. We have no idea how far we as a nation have gone down this very path today. Look, if you're a Democrat, worship of your leaders is required of you. Oh, guess what? If you're a Republican, worship of your leaders is required of you. You may say I'm wrong, but are you permitted to disagree with them? Oftentimes, no, you are not. I mean, for anyone to say, if you are not voting for me, then you are not black, or you're not white, or whatever. And this holds true of both sides, right? And many times, and in many ways, that is a requirement for worship, not obedience. There are several questions right now that we need to be asking at this point of our passage and of our lives. First, how do we respond well when faced with persecution? We need to recognize who the true enemy is. Our enemy today is not our neighbor. No matter what they may look like, no matter what they may act like, our greatest enemy in America today is Satan. And Satan is ravaging our country. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We need to first recognize our one true enemy is Satan. Next, we need to see each other differently. Part of our problem is that we look and we see each other as either white or black or brown or yellow or whatever. God has given us a very biblical means that we must use to see each other. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God writes, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. All of humanity bears the very image of God. That image has been deeply marred by the fall. But when we look upon one another, our mindset should be that we are looking upon an image bearer of the creator of the heavens and earth. And we all bear that exact same image. Finally, how do we respond well? What is the pro proper response when faced with such intense spiritual warfare as we are seeing in America right now? Again, Ephesians chapter 6 holds our answer. In verse 13, we, re we read, Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, it's here, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, stand. Today we see rampant evil in America. And just as Mordecai stood his ground, we need to stand firm for what is righteous in the eyes of God. And this is what the rest of Ephesians 6 is going to go on to discuss. And then finally, Ephesians 6 finishes this discussion and says that we need to pray for each other. But like I said at the start, the ultimate problem is the fallen, sinful heart. And the only way to see the heart changed is to have the very hand of God reach in and touch and heal a person's heart.
And the only way for that to happen is by every single one of us sharing the truth about Jesus with everyone possible. We need this world to know that Jesus loved each and every one of us equally. Jesus as God knew our heart problems and he chose to become the solution. Jesus chose the cross. Jesus walked into Jerusalem knowing that he was going to be crucified and die. He knew that while upon that cross, God the Father was going to look within his eyes and pour out all of his wrath and anger towards all of our sin upon his own Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. We can only begin to see the hearts of people changed by the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when they become a member of the church, the bride of Christ, Jesus will then begin to change those hearts so that when he returns, they might be pure and prepared for her groom, our King. We need to yearn for the day to come when Jesus returns and remakes this world, when he does away with hatred and sin. But until then, we need to daily renew our minds through the reading of the word of God. We need to stand firm shoulder to shoulder with one another, seeing each other with eyes stained by the blood of Christ. We need to stand firm for righteousness. And when we see unrighteousness, we need to speak grace. We need to speak the grace of God that comes through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the only means by which men and women might ultimately begin to change and see each other as we truly are, image bearers of the one true God. I hope that each of us is spurred on today to share Christ, to share Jesus. But we need to do so in peace and with grace. This world is fallen and lost and searching for hope and meaning and Satan is devouring it daily. Jesus is calling his children to him by name and he is asking each one of us to be his voice in this noisy, chaotic world. Amen. Let us pray. Father God of the heavens, we pray, Lord, that first and foremost, you would transform our hearts that we might see each other as you yourself see us. Help us that we might see each other as those who bear your image, as image bearers of the Creator. Help us, Father, by transforming our hearts and minds each and every time we open your word and read. Father, more than anything else, we pray that you would bless each and every one of us that we might become ambassadors of peace sent in your name, proclaiming your grace and mercy through the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless us, Father, that we might be a blessing to so many who are right now hurting in our nation. Amen. And now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.